0: A couple of days ago, uh, one of the major events that happened was when uh, a barista in Starbucks in the US called the police to arrest a couple of African Americans who were sitting in Starbucks just waiting for people and playing on their phone. So they weren't doing anything criminal then, but because this barista felt fearful, felt as if she she or he was being threatened in some way, they felt that there's a need to call the police. Now Starbucks quickly realized that this was not good for their reputation, was not good for their credibility. So what they did was they closed down Starbucks all over the states for one whole day so that everyone will get uh, unconscious bias training. So, and other companies started to see that having unconscious bias within the organization has implications on the way they treat their clients, their customers, but also has an implications on the kind of people that they hire within their organization because how can you serve your clientele how can you serve your diverse customers if your own employees are is not represent is not representative of the population right
1: Agreed.
0: yeah so because of this uh, many global companies they started uh, departments they created roles that look specifically into implementing um, diversity and inclusion initiatives or intervention in order to address these kinds of issues.
1: Welcome to yet another awesome episode of Living It Up in Lion City, a podcast about life in Singapore, where we talk about what's happening on this little red dot we call home. I hope you all have enjoyed the last few episodes on understanding xenophobia in Singapore. I'm really grateful for all the feedback received, and I'm super happy that some of you found value in those episodes. I'm currently working on episode three, and I have to be honest, it's taking longer than I expected. But in the meantime, here's an episode about cultural intelligence, where I had a fascinating conversation with Ling Ling Tai, who is a seasoned learning and development professional with a passion for supporting leaders and teams in leveraging diversity, increasing intercultural awareness, and cultivating inclusive workplaces. Having lived and worked in six countries, she believes that openness, compassion and inclusion creates thriving and engaging workplaces. She's also the host of the fantastic podcast, Leaders of Learning, which is the top podcast in Southeast Asia for exploring topics on personal and organizational development. While doing my homework on xenophobia and cultural stereotyping, I came across the concept of cultural intelligence, and so I reached out to Ling Ling to get her take on understanding cultural intelligence. Enjoy the episode, folks.
0: You know, interestingly enough, before you approached me about this topic about xenophobia in Singapore, I haven't actually researched or considered the issue of xenophobia in Singapore. For the listeners who don't know me, I am a Malaysian Chinese. So I look very much like a Chinese person, which has the same physicality as someone who is uh, born in Singapore, so the majority race in Singapore. So when I, I lived in Singapore, I lived there for eight years now, the people actually consider me as part of the majority group because we look quite the same. So I reckon it's a kind of issue where if you're part of the majority group, it's not seen of, it's not heard of. Unless... I met I meet someone like you, Rindo, or someone else who who share with me their anecdote anecdotes about the xenophobia that they have experienced while they were in Singapore. So thank you so much for bringing me into this conversation. Otherwise, I wouldn't have been aware of how uh, dire this issue is in Singapore.
1: Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, maybe dire is a little too strong a word because um, perspective is very important and. The important thing to note is that uh, you can live a life of, you know, with self-respect and and dignity uh, without having to deal with a lot of these things. Um, And, you know, I dare say if I were to live elsewhere, the issue would be very, very different. Um, So, you know, and before we talk about that, Ling Ling, why don't you tell us a little bit about, you know, who you are and, you know, what you do.
0: Thank you so much for inviting me onto your show, Rindo. It's such a pleasure and an honor to to be here and to talk about a a topic like xenophobia. I I call myself an intercultural strategist or an interculturalist because the uh, field of culture, how one person from one culture interacts, connects, collaborates with someone in another culture completely fascinates me. Because as I said earlier on, I was born in Malaysia, but my entire life, I had the wonderful opportunity to live in many different countries, six, in fact, including Singapore. So I had been on the receiving end of xenophobia. And I've also been on the end of being part of the majority group where I don't see this in on a daily basis. So Driven by my this curiosity and passion and a combination of my life experiences, I started a company called Culture Spark Global, where I help teams and leaders and companies to figure out ways on how they can work better together, connect, collaborate, build stronger relationships across peop- uh, people from different cultures. Be it these people are within their own teams, uh, within their own companies, that have offices in many different locations or maybe with their vendors or clients or customers. So topics around stereotyping, diversity, inclusion, uh, all come up within my scope uh, under Culture Spark Global. So prior to starting my company, I was in training, learning and development for big MNCs uh, in the travel semiconductor, electronic, nonprofit industries. So I have been training uh, employees all over Europe, Asia, Pacific, and even Americas for the past 12, 15 years or so before I decided to come out on my own and help other companies to be able to think about learning and development. But then I decided to niche myself in the space of interculturalism because that's where my passion is. And like I've said earlier, I've been here in Singapore for the past eight years, and it has been wonderful.
1: Awesome. Um, you know, I remember when I first met you, it was at a workshop and a, or a seminar about cultural context in the workplace. And, you know, at the time, I had no idea that it was a thing. I was invited by a friend. And, you know, that's when I got to meet you and I got to understand, like, um, the larger conversation around you know, inclusivity and, um, all those things. So it, it was a fantastic opportunity to understand more. And, uh, you know, I think ever since then, this has always been a, a topic in my head, which, you know, I didn't realize that would be so significant, but, uh, as it turns out it is, um, and about, about significance, um, Ling Ling, mm-hmm. you know, what is like, do you generally focus on inclusivity and cultural intelligence uh, in the workplace, or is this you know in in general?
0: Uh, my clients are mostly corporate clients, so of course, the focus is within the corporates. But the tools that I have with me, and cultural intelligence is one of the tools. it's uh, an assessment that has been researched by psychologists in the past two or three decades to help identify uh, individuals who are capable to work across various different cultures. And also to identify individuals who are not capable to do that, but if they're not able to do that, how can we help develop them in that particular area? So it's one of the many tools that uh, I carry within me to help teams and organizations and and leaders when it comes to working across cultures.
1: Okay. Um, If you could define what cultural intelligence is in a nutshell, like what, what does that mean?
0: So cultural intelligence is... Uh, individuals or a person's capability to relate, to connect, to work effectively across different cultures. And it's based on the multiple intelligence framework. Its framework is quite similar to emotional intelligence, where it comes in four different uh, capabilities, as they call it. So the four different capabilities are CQ drive, CQ knowledge, uh, CQ strategy, and CQ action. So a lot of the intercultural training that's available in the market is related to understanding a culture's knowledge. And then when we talk about culture, we typically think of race and we typically think of nationality, but culture can encompass many other things as well. It can be uh, gender, it can be profession, it can be age, it can be uh, even different neighborhoods or different hobby communities. Those are considered different cultural groups. And using CQ is able to Uh, give you some idea whether you have the ability to work with someone who's not from your group, to be able to connect with someone, collaborate with them who's not from your group, and to be able to do so effectively. When you have high CQ, uh, working or connecting with someone who's not from your group is not a stressful activity because for some people, they might get anxious, they might get nervous. And therefore, if they go on a business trip and they're meant to negotiate a sales contract, if they have low CQ, the stress level will be very high for this person. But a person with a high CQ might find this assignment motivating, might find this assignment energizing. So if you learn to develop your CQ, Situations like this will become less stressful to yourself as an individual.
1: Gosh, Ling Ling, I never thought of it that way.
0: (laughs) (laughs) It's kind of like emotional intelligence in a way. If you develop your emotional intelligence, you will be less anxious to get to know someone else. If if at first you have low emotional intelligence, maybe you're not so self-aware. Maybe you find it anxious or nervous to make friends or start small talk in a networking event, or maybe you're just unaware that some of your actions and behaviors might influence the relationship around you. But if you improve or find ways to improve your emotional intelligence, you'll become more self-aware, you're able to manage your relationships, you'll be able to manage your anxieties when it comes to making new friends. So it's the same as cultural intelligence. So instead of relationships with people, it's relationship with someone who is not from your cultural group. Um, Could we,
1: uh, you know, go a little, I mean, uh, earlier you mentioned something about, um, you know, not just being about nationality and race, and you're absolutely right. I mean, culture, of course, encompasses, you know, a set of behaviors, beliefs, um, you know, ideals, Ben, and oftentimes the modern definitions or the modern discussions around culture is often along the lines of nationality and or race. Um, But, I I think you're also talking about, you know, the larger um, in-group versus out-group mechanics. Yep, exactly. Okay, right. And uh, generally, when you talk about cultural uh, intelligence within a corporate environment, um, of course, you know, race and nationality are probably, you know, very prominent in those discussions. You know, as the example of... um, the earlier example of the Starbucks uh, incident in the US that you highlighted earlier is, is a prime example of that. But are there any instances where you know cultural intelligence or the impact of cultural intelligence is felt outside of these two major you know, slices of the pie?
0: Uh, nationality and race? Of yeah. course, uh, There's, I think right now it's still quite a challenge for organizations to having to think of how they can help their employees to work across different generations. So you have a generation of employees who are probably the age of the baby boomers who have worked in a company for a long time and you have a bunch of uh, millennials or what you call it, the cen- centurions? Is that the ones that are born after the year 2000? They're coming that's into the gen- world. Huh?
1: That's Gen Z, I think. That's Gen Z. That's, that's Gen
0: Z? I think so. Yeah. So the Gen Zs are coming into the workforce and there are a lot of challenges that occur when working across the different generations because the expectations of how a person should work within the company for a baby boomer and a millennial are different. So there. Uh, so some examples are, um, so the baby boomers feel that uh, to wor- working really hard, being loyal to a company is an important value when it comes to uh, your job. Whereas a millennial would probably think like, if this company doesn't uh, is not able to provide me growth, learning, any form of development, I'll probably look for another company. So from right. the eyes of the boomers, they might think, oh, millennials are just lazy. They're only here for the benefits. But in the eyes of the millenni- millennials, it's like, I want work-life balance. I've put in my time. I make sure I've done what I can to deliver why should I put in more time if I'm not getting compensation for it, which is also a fair argument. But because it's different sides, different perspectives of the same thing. And there are a lot of challenges that go behind that as well. So within a corporate, there are generational challenges. But apart from generation, there are a lot more merger and acquisitions that are happening in various different industries. So one a company and another company can have different cultural norms, even though they might be from the same industry. So when companies merge, you have groups of people who say, oh, I'm from this company. This is how we work. This is how we use the system. Then you have employees from a different company who merge with this new company and say, no, this is how we work. So we have to uh, think of how is it that we can get these two groups of people, even though they're from the same industry, but different companies, how can we get them to work together? And this is where cultural intelligence can help to play a part. Because if we use the cultural uh, intelligence tool to us use it to assess leaders who run projects or who run programs and initiatives to help with the change management projects, the merger and acquisition projects, then you know that this leader will have the ability to see multiple perspectives and be proactive in trying to merge and combine and assimilate the employees that are from these different companies. So those wow. are the two other um, areas I could think of apart from nationality and racism that CQ is can be used.
1: That is so fascinating, Ling Ling. I mean, um, the one thing that comes to mind is that Uh, When I crack OK Boomer jokes, I'm clearly lacking in cultural intelligence.
0: (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But it's also a way of how millennials (laughs) defend themselves as well. (laughs) Instead of uh, clearly articulating their own stresses and anxieties of the pressures of the boomers, they say it in your way, you know, hey, OK Boomer. (laughs) I find that amusing.
1: (laughs) It is, it is. But then again, you know, since we don't identify as boomers, you know, clearly we don't have an issue with it, right? Exactly. Um, I I think I've been reading a lot of articles about how you know the boomer generation, so to speak, you know, try to defend it, you know, citing cultural values and all that stuff. But um, I think one of the criticisms which I kind of understood very well was that um, the the author said that okay, boomer is an oversimplification of issues from a time that aren't necessarily because of the people. Mm -hmm. Though, you know, you could talk about, you know, certain political or economic issues that happened in the 1960s and 70s, but, you know, by compressing it to a very simplistic phrase like, okay, boomer, you're bringing in, you know, people into it, and you are indirectly um, attributing or assigning blame to those people rather than to the you know environment surrounding it. So um and the same thing applies the other way where you know um, boomers you know accuse millennials of being so and so and all that but it is it isn't necessarily the case because they're not taking into consideration uh, the the political, social and economic environment around, around it.
0: Exactly. One great thing that came out of the okay boomer meme is that uh it's encouraging people to talk about this. And if you don't talk about it, it won't be addressed. People's perspectives won't be raised, and boomers wouldn't know how the millennials think. Millennials wouldn't know how the boomers think. We need these dialogues. We need these discussions so that people can be more aware of what's going on on the different sides.
1: Absolutely, Lingling. And since you mentioned this, um, do you believe that communication is also a big part of cultural intelligence? Um, Of
0: course. It's 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 core to anything.
1: Of course. Yeah, well, I, I guess maybe let me rephrase it, because um, you have been talking about cultural intelligence as a way to, you know, perceive and understand and, you know, act upon it. Um, But, you know, how does communication play into this? Like, is there um, a clear cut strategy when it comes to addressing um, the dissonance between, you know, two groups, so to speak?
0: Okay. So if we go back to the cultural intelligence framework, I mentioned earlier, there are four components or capabilities to it. One is uh, the drive. The other one is knowledge, strategy, and action. So drive refers to your own willingness and your own motivation, as well as confidence to want to tackle the cultural issue. If you don't have the motivation, if you don't have the inner willingness to want to change anything, nothing's going to happen. Okay. So that's one thing, and the next thing is knowledge, which is typically what you get in uh, many of the blogs, many of the intercultural training. So knowledge refers to what is the national characteristics of of a person. Like, for example, how how is it like to work with Singaporeans? How is it like to work with Malaysians? How is it like to work with Americans? Uh, so. Typically, these kinds of trainings will talk about the history, we will talk about the population composition, the religious composition, the political uh, landscape, the economic uh, s- situation. So it's more around understanding on a knowledge level about that particular cultural group. Uh, So the third component to it, which is strategy, is when you have the motivation and when you have the knowledge, you have to prepare and you have to plan on how you are going to um, tackle or overcome or manage the cultural issue that you want to address. And it may not be a cultural issue. It may be a simple thing as... I relocate to a new country, how am I going to make friends with locals? It could be just as simple as that. Or it can be, I don't know the local language, but I still need to go to the supermarket to buy my groceries. So when you have the knowledge, when you have the motivation to do it, then you have to come up with different strategies or different plans of action that you are going to take. Sit down, reflect on your situation, your level of Uh, comfort in adapting to the new situation, whatever the situation might be? And what is a realistic plan of action for you to take in order to achieve what you want to achieve in that cultural situation? And finally, the last component of cultural intelligence is action. Uh, Action refers to the actual physical action of communication, of nonverbal language, of of gestures, of facial expressions are you able to change your accent? Are you able to slow down your speech so the other person can understand you? Are you able to uh, be less expressive so the person you're connecting to will feel more comfortable? So all of this is uh, related to the communication that you mentioned earlier. And it's well and good you've got all this knowledge, but typically what people lack in is the strategy part. They don't sit down, take the time to think and reflect, okay, how am I going to approach uh, this situation? There is no one clear-cut, cookie-cutter way in addressing culture, because as you and I know, culture is such a complex, uh, I wouldn't say issue, complex field. It's really highly based on uh, the local context, the people that are involved in it. There are so many factors to consider. So if someone says to you that there's this one cookie cutter way to solve all of cultural communication? No, they're they're lying. It's kind of like a get rich quick kind of scheme. You know, it doesn't exist.
1: Okay, that's a familiar analogy. Um, um, but yeah, you're absolutely <laughs> Ooh, right. Someone's think, got you know, experience there. Like, <laughs> I was young and dumb. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, but no, you're absolutely right. You know, culture is just—it's uh, a very complex, multi-layered thing. Um, it's it's wonderful. It's it's infuriating. But that's what makes it so engaging. Um, and I think the more I started reading into, you know, cultural intelligence, more I started watching videos about it, the more fascinated I am by how uh, infinitely difficult it is for people to even identify a problem before even, you know, figuring out steps to go ahead. Not, not that's an issue, but I think I, I think that's part of the journey and part of the joy and part of the passion as you said earlier on which is i guess one of the reasons why you wanted to get into this you were like "Hmm, this is a complex problem that could take the rest of my life let's get into it
0: (laughs) well since you put it that way huh
1: (laughs) it's like it's like the ultimate sudoku puzzle you know so it's like this is yeah this is
0: you know awesome. you're never gonna win but you want to you want to try your best right <laughs> even if I can't make a big impact in the world but if I could help just one person to see that you know if you just change the way you speak maybe you can be friends with that person.
1: <laughs> I I definitely see the benefit of it and uh, you know I think it's very important for all of us to um, you know understand. The lessons of, you know, how to attain cultural intelligence. Is that how you say it? Like, do you say that you become culturally intelligent or what's the, you know, how do you know that you've, that you've gotten there?
0: I don't think you can ever be 100%. I am the most culturally intelligent person on the earth. I don't think (laughs) there is such a, a thing. There is no ranking system, but one way to know whether you have progressed on this path is to see your own network. Is it a diverse network of friends, of colleagues? Is it mostly of people from your same cultural group? Or do you have friends who are from a different cultural group, from a different location, different age, different gender? I think one great marker to know if your cultural intelligence is to see your own network.
1: Okay. That's that's actually a really good indicator. And I dare say that I think, I believe in Singapore, there's no lacking of that. I think the very the very nature of Singaporean society is that it's multicultural. Um, there is a level of engagement that happens between different groups, uh, you know, uh, not just about race and nationality, but all sorts of things. You know, it could be along class lines and all that stuff. So there's a lot of that stuff that happens and it helps that Singapore is, uh, you know, fairly small. So, you know, the it's not like Certain sections are invisible to other sections. There's always, you know, that visibility that happens. So I do believe that that plays a part in, um, you know, people here generally being a little more aware of um, the folks around them than, let's say, um, a country with a much larger area and with a much wider um, socio-cultural gap between communities, so to speak. Um, and you know, on that topic, um, I just want to understand. Is that how you define xenophobia? Like, is xenophobia the lack of cultural intelligence? And not just about the lack of cultural intelligence, but the lack of the CQ drive in in wanting to, you know, understand more about the other side?
0: Well, I remember earlier in our conversation, you said xenophobia has been on the rise in the past decade. Actually, xenophobia has been around for centuries. It's just that we see more and more of it with the, Support or advancement of technology. News passes throughout the entire world to everyone in in a faster way. Not only that, um, cultural symbols also um, you know pass through the internet and go into people's phone faster too. So you might see something that is shocking on the phone one day when it's not normal where you come from, uh, and also in the past decade or so, you see greater mobility of people around the world. You have people migrating to different countries, or you have people going on business trips a lot more. So by having people moving from one place to another, be it for work or be it for studies or marriage or whatever it is, that will also introduce the foreignness to a country that is not used to accepting foreigners. So if we break down the word xenophobia, it's actually a combination of two words. So xeno refers to foreignness or strangers, right? And phobia, as we know, phobia, is it refers to fear. But xenophobia has taken on a, a greater meaning in society because it's not only just about the fear of someone who is a foreigner or someone who's a stranger to you, but it also encompasses other emotions as well. Uh, like hatred, or to the extreme, you'll have uh, war such as what happened in World War two in germany and and the Jews right, with Hitler. So that is a form of xenophobia as well, yeah, so when it comes to cultural intelligence and xenophobia, I wouldn't say it is it it is interlinked in a certain way. I would believe that if you are more Uh, culturally intelligent, you are less xenophobic because you do see the benefit of interacting with someone who is different than you. And if you're a xenophobe, highly likely you will have lower levels of cultural intelligence. But the xenophobia is such a complicated uh, issue that cultural intelligence alone is really not enough to address it because there's so many other factors that come into xenophobia. It could be the the national narrative, what the governments are saying in their national uh, media when it comes to foreigners, what the, the experiences of the locals when it comes to uh, receiving f- foreigners in their country, it could be the economic situation, it could be so many other factors that CQ itself is not able to address it because CQ really looks at the individual person but not as a society at whole. Right. If, if that helps answer your quen's question.
1: Uh, it definitely does, because, you know, I've spent a lot of time trying to understand how best to approach this topic. And, you know, having lived in Singapore for eight years now, you know, and, you know, I, I, I live on the online space. Um, You know, I'm quite familiar with a lot of the online forums here in Singapore. I'm quite active in a lot of them. And so I do feel like I have a distinct, I, I do have a, a fairly good grasp of the issues that Singaporeans face, um, in in general, so um, one of the things that I try to figure out is, even though there is no realistic way for me personally to um, change minds, you know, as a whole, you know, because it's like, as you rightly pointed out, um, it's it's more than just about you know fearing the other. There's you know, economic, social, and you know national narratives that have to be grappled with. So, but at the same time, I do feel that as a person i can you know at least say something or do something that would change the way that someone else would think about me or feel about me or act because of my presence you know so maybe that's Most what i Most
0: definitely yeah there there are uh, definitely ways on how you can tackle xenophobia on an individual level if it's on a societal and a national level you'll probably need to be in government or a politician to help Push the uh, a national agenda to be accepting of foreigners or encourage acceptance of foreigners. But on an individual day to day level, of course, you can do something in order to uh, reduce the level of xenophobia. And you rightly say so. It's to to have the conversation with other people to help them to critically analyze their their thought process when it comes to their fear of of people who are different than themselves there are, are other ways on, you can help to reduce xenophobia within uh, within your community or within your society. You know, this reminded me of an, an a story a friend of mine shared not too long ago, and then she's left Singapore now. She's a Taiwanese-Canadian, so it's Canadian by nationality, but Ty- Taiwanese by ethnicity. She lived in Singapore for about three years or so, And one day she, a a good friend of hers from the Americas came to visit her and they took the MRT from one station to another station. So within that short period of time, she was speaking Chinese to her American friend because they both lived in China before. An elderly lady standing next to them started scolding them and say, you know, you should go back to China. You should go back to where you come from. You shouldn't be here. And even though she was... Taiwanese and clearly her accent isn't you know China, mainland China accent she was just stunned and flabbergasted that even though she looks like a local she's still being treated that way so if you are someone who wants to tackle xenophobia and if you encounter situations like this be the person to stand up for the victim of xenophobe talk to the elderly lady and say she's not from China uh, why should you be angry at someone who is not from China? These are just some of the minor things that you can do to help reduce xenophobia in, in your community, in your neighborhood.
1: Well, Ling Ling, I mean, um, I think one of the issues with communication, at least that I feel, um, is is that um, it it isn't necessarily going to change minds. It's just going to stop people from talking about it. Um, it's... Um, you know, conversations that I've had with close friends, you know, who I'm comfortable enough to talk about this topic, Um, you know, we could be the most reasonable person in the room. Um, We could, Mm -hmm. you know, regale the, you know, our friends with, you know, facts and statistics and, you know, um, perceptions that are generally inaccurate or, you know, opinions that spawned from misinformation and all those things. And we could actually talk about how their particular feelings... Um, you know, we could we could address that xenophobia or address that, you know, discomfort that they have towards anyone else. But that doesn't necessarily change minds, uh, at least from what I've seen, what I've experienced is that um, it only serves to have people, you know, just not talk about it. And so instead yeah, of-
0: Unfortunately, you know, but ha- so having that conversation is the seed that you plant in a person's mind. One conversation is not going to help change a person's beliefs- a person's belief system that they've held for their entire lifetime. It has to be continuous. It has to be continuous. It has to be multiple conversations. And it could be conversations that may not come from you, maybe from you once, but it could be conversations from someone else to remind them that they too are human beings. They too are just like me.
1: So oh, people well. who are... Mm-hmm. go on like sorry yeah
0: it reminded me of um a book i'm reading at the moment it's called welcoming the unwelcome by pema chodron and she says one great way to see to practice a sense of empathy to practice a sense of kindness and compassion is to do this practice called just like me so what she says that you can do for yourself is to sit in a public area and focus on a stranger, anyone in the area, and think to yourself, just like me, this person has fears. Just like me, uh, this person is worried about their job. Just like me, this person is hungry. Just like me, this person can get angry. So when you practice this on yourself, you role model kindness, you role model empathy. And when you have these conversations, and you cannot just have one, you have to have multiple conversations, all of this will definitely come out. And hopefully this will give um, an example, a role model to people who who have that fear and nervousness and anger and frustration against foreigners. You might not change one mind, but who knows, one conversation might change someone else's mind. And isn't that worth having a conversation?
1: That's, that's so interesting. Um, could you re- repeat the name of that book again? I think I should definitely have a go at it.
0: It's called Welcoming the Unwelcome by Pema Chodron. So she is a Buddhist monk, uh, well known because she lived as a recluse or hermit for 14 years in India before she decided to come out and uh, be part of society again. Her aim was to become the first female Buddha
1: Wow, okay. Um, yeah. Is, is, is that something you, is that like a goal that people can aspire to? Like you wake up in the morning and go, hey, I want to be Padi. I'm sorry, I'm probably just <laughs> trivializing <laughs> her goals. <laughs> why,
0: why not? Why not? It's, it's a big goal. And when it comes to spirituality, of course, people have their own paths to take. Uh, and now she's doing a lot of really good work. Uh, she has a foundation. She, uh, started her own i think nunnery in india i was looking into that not that long ago to uh encourage women uh, to support women who wants to renounce the world and become a buddhist nun wow
1: um yeah Ling Ling, I'll, i'm definitely gonna have a go at that book i think there's a lot of things that i could learn and you know op- apply hopefully because um yeah i mean i think i I think there's a lot of cynicism that I have with regards to this topic and maybe that that probably needs some addressing too rather than me trying to externalize issues and stuff. So um, thank you well, for that. Well, really you
0: more. are right earlier on to say that we cannot control other people's minds. We can only control our own thoughts and our own actions. So why not make those actions and make those thoughts as useful or as impactful as possible. And even if we don't change the minds, at least we know we've done our part.
1: Wise words, Lingling, wise words. Um, wow, okay. You have given me a lot to think about. Um, and it is because this is very much in line with the point behind me doing this podcast series. Um, I started this wanting to understand I've I've come to realize that you know understanding the issue and talking about the issue is not enough. Um, I also want this to be about um, actionable points that you know individuals can do uh, to address it. Um, I've mentioned this to you before. The first episode was about the history of immigration within Singapore because that context is important to understand what's happening right now. Um, This. The current one that I'm working on is to be about, you know, the facets of discomfort with foreigners. And I, you know, now talking to you, I've come to realize that maybe I shouldn't use the word xenophobia so much because the negative connotations are way more than what generally happens in Singapore. So um I've realized that maybe I should just focus on uh discomfort, which is which is prevalent, but at the same time not as insidious. Um so I do want to cover like some of those facets. And I think you you put some across beautifully. So I'm going to steal a lot of your dialogue. And, uh, <laughs> Go ahead yeah. and
0: steal it. <laughs> I still believe conversation is a great way to start. So don't stop <laughs> talking about it, actually.
1: Of course, of course. I think that is one big takeaway. Um, I will say that it is often a struggle, but uh, I think you made me realize that it is, it is always going to be a struggle and there's never going to be a point in time where it's going to stop being one. So might as well start now. Um the the last mm-hmm. part the last part of the podcast series is going to be about what, you know, foreigners of specific groups, of different groups, of foreigners in general can do to address certain things that they may or may not face. Um, so the, this would be under the ambit of cultural quotient actions, I guess, where we try to um, understand the context, understand the scenarios, and figure out what we can do about it either by talking about it or doing something um yeah, it's the it.
0: whole uh cq it's not just one element they all work together
1: yep yep so um yo i think i have uh there's so much for me to do uh to learn and uh i really hope that this is the start uh, i'm going to keep it to three episodes but uh you know who knows there could be a lot more that can come from this
0: Yep, yeah, who knows? I'm glad you are brave enough and courageous enough to talk about issues like this, because I know in countries like uh, Singapore, where they want to maintain uh, cultural harmony, sometimes issues like this is, you know, is suppressed, because the fear of if you raise uh, this discussion, it might hurt some feelings, it might cause some anger and frustration. But I, li- I believe this is a good starting point, we need to see the anger, we need to see the frustration, because it's from there, then we can understand why the other person is angry, why the other person is frustrated, and you know the other person truly, truly cares. And together well, we can work, well, figure out what works for everyone.
1: I, I agree with you 100%. Um, but I will be honest with you when I say that I sat on this topic for many, many months because I was afraid. Um, it, it was, as you said, you know, there is generally an apprehension to talk about, you know, certain divisive topics that can elicit um, vitriol. And this has mm-hmm. happened a number of times, not just, you know, five or f- four or five years ago, but it happens every year. Um, and I think I'm, my immediate concern is for, you know, the people that I love and the people that I'm close to. Um, I just do not you know i sat on this for so long mostly because i did not want to be the reason why they would be getting that death, death threats so it's uh it has been a struggle and you know talking about it has always been a struggle but um the incident that happened in november 2019 um with respect to ramesh aramali and everything that, that entailed uh, kind of made me realize that maybe we should start talking about it um if you know his Wife and kids started getting death threats for reasons that are not of their doing. Maybe it's time to, you know, speak up about why these things are happening. So, um,
0: it's kind of like driving in a way. You can drive the most safest speed, you can be conscious of everything else, but you never know who is the driver next to you. You can't control everyone else. So, you have to speak up.
1: Yep, yep. I mean pressing the uh button of the gas is probably the only way to do it. And
0: kudos to you to getting I mean, to having this courage to speak up. And I feel really honored that you've invited me to speak alongside you too.
1: The pleasure is all mine, Ling Ling. The pleasure is all mine. Uh thank you also for the the vast playlist of YouTube videos that I should catch up on. And <laughs> may- <laughs> Maybe we should talk about uh, unconscious bias, um, you know, another time once I've caught up on like all the complexities of it. But uh, yeah. Sure thing. Um, yeah. Ling Ling, it was an absolute pleasure having you uh, as, as part of this. And, um, you know, I hope to, you know, meet up with you soon. Uh, you know, of course, after the virus situation and all that, hopefully at the next podcast <laughs> meet up. Yep. So, that was my conversation with Ling Ling, and she gave me some fantastic insight into cultural intelligence and xenophobia. We recorded this episode way back in March, and her opinions and recommendations went a long way in shaping how I look at these topics. I've included some resources in the show notes, so do check them out. Also, do check out Ling Ling's podcast. It's called Leaders of Learning, and it's available on all popular podcast platforms you'll find a link in the show notes too. I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. I'm still in the process of building up part three of the series on understanding xenophobia in Singapore. So in the meantime, please give the last two episodes a listen and I'd love to know what you think about it. On that note, this is Rindo and you are listening to Living It Up in Lion City.